You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, welcome to class number four in our series here of My God. In each of the previous lessons, we've dealt with four or five key questions about God. We first nine questions we spoke about that, was, that included the first God's resume, if you want to call it about God's nature, God's makeup. Last week, we spoke about God's relationship with the world. In this lesson, we're going to explore four questions that talk about the nature of our relationship with God. After seeing that God exists, exploring his nature, appreciating how much he wishes to engage with us in this world, we now come to the next step, what does it mean to us? How do we engage with God? What does God mean to us in our daily life? So therefore, for today, what we're going to talk about, our four questions are, question number one, do I have to believe in God to be Jewish? Question number two, is it kosher to have doubts about God? Question number three, why must I fear God? And question number four, I'm okay with believing in God, but I'm not religious, can we still have a relationship? So let's delve into it. Our first question for today is, do I have to believe in God to be Jewish? Most people, when we talk about them, mention the word Jewish to them, what's the first thing they think about? What's Judaism? A religion. Now, generally, when we talk about what's a religion, a religion is a set of beliefs that you belong to a certain religion, or any religion maybe, whether it's Judaism or any other one, means that you subscribe to a certain set of beliefs that you follow, or you're meant to follow, or you should be following, and that's what we call something called a religion. What does it mean, belief in God? You know the story about, they say about a fellow was climbing a tree, and all of a sudden one of the limbs of the tree start weakening, and he's hanging over a cliff, and he's holding on by dear life, and finally he screams out, God, help me! Please, I'm about to fall. And all of a sudden, a voice of heaven comes out and says, Let go. To which he shouts back and says, Anybody else up there? <laughs> so what does it mean to be believing God? And what does it mean to be religious? Believing in God is probably pretty high up there on the list of beliefs if we talk about being religious. So which raises the following question. And our question for today is, must a Jew believe in God to be a Jew? You've got to be Jewish, you've got to believe in God to be Jewish. It's probably safe to assume that everybody sitting in this room knows somebody who is technically Jewish and maybe doesn't believe in God. So the question is, are they correctly identifying themselves as Jewish? Because they don't believe in God. Or did they forfeit the right to call themselves Jewish by the very fact that they don't believe in God? Does one depend on another or can it be independently? So let's find out. So to start with, we have to first discuss what is a Jew. What does it mean to be a Jew? And that can be a very tricky question because if we look in the dictionary of what it means to be a Jew or religious, let's take this as follows. What is a race? A race means, typically, a group of humans, the Webster's Dictionary calls it, you have it in Exercise 4.1, a 
A group of humans that are often divided into based on the physical traits are regarded as common among people of a shared ancestry. We have Jews of all races. What about a culture? According to the Webster's Dictionary, a culture means the customary beliefs, social norms, and material traits in a racial, religious, and social groups. There are many different cultures within Judaism. Some have lox and bagels, some have schmaltz herring, some have pickled herring, some have gefilte fish, and some have salmon. Every person has their own different type of culture. There's no one culture limited that you can say that Judaism is limited to a certain culture. Not only that, that's even surprising that probably you'll go to other segments of Judaism and say, what, you don't know what bagels and lox are? And the other person said, what, you never ate some shakshuka, whatever maybe? So the culture is so different. Nation, there are Jews living as loyal citizens in every nation. There are American Jews, there are English Jews, there are Spanish Jews, there are German Jews. There's all kinds of Jews. What about religion? A religion is a cause or principle or system of beliefs held into honor and faith. There are millions of Jews who identify as Jewish, but yet, in never not a religious in any shape or the form. So what is Judaism? What does it mean to be Jewish? So let's explore, let's explore these possibilities with the following video. not the case. 
We've got British, French, Italian, Turkish, South African, Swedish, Spanish, Argentinian, and Indian Jews. You'll find Jews in every country, and almost all of them are citizens only of the state within which they reside. Even the state of Israel includes millions of non-Jewish Israeli citizens. That pops the nationality argument, doesn't it? And here's a bigger buster. Historically, the Jews did not have an independent state for most of their existence as a people. Strike three. Religion. That sounds good. Are you Jewish because you follow the Jewish religion? Well, no, because many Jews do not associate themselves with any religion. In fact, there are many Jews who do not even know they are Jewish. And there are also Jews who practice a religion other than Judaism. But according to Judaism, they are all equally Jewish. Phew, this is really tough. I guess it's time for the one and only Jewish answer. Being Jewish means that you have a Jewish soul. How do you get a Jewish soul? The most common way is through a Jewish mother. You see, according to Judaism, every child to a Jewish mother is naturally born with a Jewish soul. Your mother's race and nationality make no difference. She might follow the Jewish religion or culture, or she might not. But if she's Jewish, you're Jewish. And there's no opting out. If you're born a Jew, it means that God decided that you're meant to be Jewish for life. So if you're Jewish, thank your mom. Then there's conversion. If you were not born to a Jewish mother, but you complete the authentic and challenging Jewish process of becoming Jewish, God will give you a Jewish soul at the moment of conversion. So what can we take away from all this? It is the privilege and responsibility of each Jew to lead a Jewish life. But those who do not are authentically Jewish. Living the Jewish way allows your soul to shine, but it does not create your soul. That's already alive and kicking inside you, waiting for you to connect. So what is a Jew? It's a spiritual force within you. So what do we take away from this? To put it in the words of uh, Yair Rosenberg, a contemporary journalist who specializes in Jewish topics in text number one, puts it this way, page 113. Well-meaning people have trouble fitting Jews into their usual boxes. They don't know how to define Jews, and so they resort to their own frame of references, like race, religion, and and project them onto the Jewish experience. But Jewish identity doesn't conform to Western categories, despite centuries of attempts by societies to shoehorn it in. This makes sense because Judaism predates Western categories. It's not quite a religion, because one can be Jewish regardless of observance or specific belief. Einstein, for example, was proudly Jewish, but not religiously observant. But it's also not quite a race, because people cannot convert him. Can convert him, I'm sorry. It's not merely a culture or ethnicity, because that leaves out all the religious components. And it's not simply a nationality, because although Jews do do have a homeland, and many identify as part of a nation, others do not. So what is Judaism? As we just saw in the video, we saw very clearly, if we don't know what Judaism, what a Jew is, let's turn to Judaism to see what Judaism, what what being a Jew is. And that would probably be a good source to find out what a Jew is. And Judaism tells us very clearly that what is a Jew A Jew is a person who has a Jewish soul. How does a person get a Jewish soul? You are born with it. Like it or not, you are born with it, you die with it. You have a Jewish soul, and it's attained by birth or through conversion, 
practice or beliefs do not impact or change or make a difference to your Jewish soul. And because of that, even as we're soon going to see, even someone who sins remains a Jew. What does this mean? So let's see this in the words of the Lubavitcher Rebbe on text number 2, page 114. Jewishness is not a casual feature of a Jewish identity. Rather, it is his or very essence. The status of the human animal or veg- vegetable is immutable, declaring that one is no longer a human, that is an animal reality. Isn't, that, is, that an animal really isn't an animal, or that a vegetable is no longer a vegetable isn't effective. Even if a person will go as far to deny their own existence or the existence of the human species, it still won't help them. It's not a question of free will. We possess free will over our behavior, action, speech, and thought, but not over our essence of our identity. What the Rebbe is saying over here is that there's no way in life that you can throw off your identity. You're born a Jew, there's nothing you can do. Free choice is the way I behave, what I do about my Judaism. But being Jewish, the moment you're born a Jew, that's automatically what it means that you're a Jew. For that reason, if we look at it, is that when a person is born a Jew, there are many people, you can do as many practices as you want, you still won't be a Jew. Your mother was Jewish, you're Jewish. You convert to Judaism, you automatically get that soul from God. It's because Judaism, by definition, the biological concept of Judaism is from God. Even for a person who was born to a Jewish mother, what makes them Jewish is because God made their mother Jewish. And their mother Jewish. And therefore, when a person converts, they become Jewish that way. Your soul is what makes you Jewish. And you only become Jewish if you have a Jewish soul. How do you get that Jewish soul? By being born Jewish. Now, a Jew most certainly has to believe in God. A Jew most certainly should experience that relationship and do many laws to be able to recognize that he has a Jewish soul and practice those beliefs. But the lack of Jewish belief doesn't change who you are. I can sit today and scream as many times as I want, I'm not human. Will it make you not human? I can believe that I'm not human. Will it make me not human? Absolutely not. So I can scream from the rooftops and say, I'm not Jewish, it doesn't make a difference. Of course, every Jew should believe that they're Jewish. Just like an American citizen can scream from today to tomorrow, he denounces his American citizenship. Is he still born in America? He's an American citizen. Tough luck. The same idea is also, of course we say one must believe in God and obey what God tells us to do, say, but failure to do so doesn't make you not a Jewish. The same way failure to follow the American laws, you might get in trouble, you might end up in prison, but it doesn't make you not American anymore. Yes? Question. If someone converts, it says that God is immediately assigned to you a Jewish mama. Correct. Now you have a baby. Is that baby? So if the person converted before, that means if the person had the baby, if the person converted before they had the baby, then yes. But if the baby was born after the conversion, I'm sorry, if the baby was born before the conversion, then that child was not born to a Jewish mother. <coughs> That's really where you're going to get the problem. Yes? What about the person who converts and they decide, I don't want to do this anymore? So that's a very good question. That's actually a halachic question. And the question is, what do you mean they converted? 
if they accepted upon themselves, according to halacha, to be a Jew, and they went to the mikvah, they did the whole process, and let's say then five years later they regret, then they're just like a regular Jew who's not practicing. They don't give up their Judaism. Once you accept it and you went through the process and the best that halachically said you're Jewish, there is no turning back. There are certain batidinim, there are certain rabbinical courts for that reason who will not convert people until they see them practicing for a year or two, whatever, and they will not give them the affirmation or certificate. So if they want to, so to speak, denounce that they still have that opportunity. Yes? I was going to ask for a similar question. Oh, okay. Thank you. So regardless of what a Jew does or practices, you can see this in many different ways, but probably most predominantly during the high holiday season. If you were to walk in, or any good Christian that's attending services in a church, and you ask them, do you believe in God? The immediate answer would be, of course, or else what am I doing here? But I'm sure you can find numerous people that show up to shul on the high holidays, especially in Yom Kippur, and you ask them, do you believe in God? And they'll say, not really. So what are you doing here? Well, it's Yom Kippur. What do you expect? You see the difference? You know, they say a story about once this guy was standing out on the street was looking for a tenth man. This was in New York City. And he's looking for a tenth man to come make for somebody to daven mincha, to say Kaddish. So he stops this fellow and he says, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? So he says, sure. He says, why do you ask? So he says, because we need a minyan for mincha. Would you why mind coming and being a tenth? So he goes, well, I don't really don't believe in God. So he says, where does it say you have to believe in God to daven mincha? <laughs> but it takes it even a step further. The essence of the Jew being his soul is the consciousness of the Jew. And that the Jew always recognizes his creator, whether he practices or not, and that's what gets the Jew to show up at certain times, even though seemingly on the outside, they're not practicing or they don't believe. This is why a Jew doesn't have the opportunity ever to renounce his Judaism. Because as the Talmud puts it, even one who sins remains a Jew. Text number 3 on page 115. Rabbi Abba Bar Savda said, even one who sins remains a Jew. You can discard your nationality by giving up your citizenship. Your religion by renouncing your beliefs. You can try to give up any other culture, but you will not be able to give up your Judaism. Regardless of what you do, as the very famous story, as the fellow who was looking to make a living, I'm sure you heard this story once before, this old Jew who needed to make a living, he goes with his friend and he says, you know, in the town the priest is offering $10,000 anybody that converts to Judaism. I mean, converts to Christianity. So they go over to the priest and the priest says, listen here, I know you Jews, you're just coming for a quick buck. So he says, yeah, you know that you can't have any chicken on Friday night. If you become a Christian, it's just sure, we'll take it, no problem. And we're not going to have any chicken. So the Jews come inside, they take the um, holy waters are sprinkled on them, they announce that they're Christians, they get the $10,000, and the ankle and muddle, they go home to celebrate Shabbos, because Friday night is going to be Shabbos. <laughs> so the priest had a little sneaky suspicion that these fellows were not, uh, you know, faithful to their conversion, and he sees Friday night, there's a big meal of beautiful chicken on the table, everybody's enjoying. He walks in and says, busted, you guys are Christians, you're not allowed to have any chicken on Friday night. He says, priest, come on. you got to realize when you took that holy water and you sprinkled some of me, you said, you're no longer a Jew, you're now a Christian. I took some water, I confess. 
but I took some water and I sprinkled it on the chicken. I said, no longer a chicken, you're now a fish. <laughs> the same way the chicken doesn't change, the same way the Jude can't change. No matter what happens. You can believe today, tomorrow, regardless of what happens, that Judaism is going to stay with you no matter what happens in life. Uh, however, as we mentioned before, we reiterate the fact that a person, a synchronized Jew, is a person who expresses his Jewishness through their behavior, and therefore a Jew must always look to see what they can do to be able to enhance their relationship with God and to make sure that they are synchronized with God. But if God forbid they fail to do so, that cannot undo a person's Jewishness. There's an interesting and fascinating story told by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. He was a fellow who used to go around all different countries, states, and cities to be able to collect money for Chabad institutions. When the Rebbe knew about there were many Jews that came to America in the early, in the late 1800s, who came from Hasidic families and unfortunately have left their Hasidic roots and Americanized themselves by, uh, in, you know, so to speak, assimilating with the rest of the American population, dropped all the Judaism by the border, and became like everybody else. And the Rebbe encouraged many of his elder Hasidim, who knew these people's grandparents, to go visit them and see them and speak to them about Judaism. One such person was a fellow by the name of and Mr. Listener, Mr. Listener lives in Chicago, a very wealthy individual. And the Rebbe asked from Shmuel Levitin, who was a very distinguished rabbi who already learned in Lubavitch, to go visit this Mr. Listener and speak to him and encourage him, you know, to tell him about his past and remind him about his past. Interesting thing that this fellow, Mr. Listener, was a grandchild of a chassid of the first Chabad Rebbe. He had even great to the merit his father, I think his grandfather, was a shochet. He was such a shochet, he was such a God of blessing, that all his slaughtering was perfect. He was 53 years a shochet, not once did he make one non-kosher. That's what kind of first family, prestigious family he came from. And they came to Chicago, and they wanted to meet this fellow, so they went to the rabbi of the synagogue and said, are you able to arrange a meeting with this fellow, Mr. Listener? It seemed to be that he was a well-to-do individual, and getting a meeting with him wasn't that easy. So they set up a meeting, they were able, after a lot of pressure, they were able to set up a meeting in this fellow's home office, and they go to meet with him, and they talk with him, and they have a nice chat, they talk about his grandparents, and he was also very enamored, he had pictures of his grandparents, though he was absolutely secular, did not believe in anything of Judaism. But they had a nice conversation. At the end of the conversation, this Mr. Listener says, okay, uh, how much are you asking? You know, what you came for for donation? That's what usually rabbis came to the secular Jews at those times. We're talking about in the 1940s. And he says, um, what kind of donation can I give you? So they actually told him, we're not here for a donation. He says, what do you mean? You traveled all the way from New York to Chicago. Those days was not an easy travel. And he says, you just came here, four rabbis, just to be able to say hello to me. That doesn't sound right. What do you mean you didn't come for a donation? He says, no, we didn't come for a donation. And I hope you're not offended by it, Rib Shmuel tells him. He tells him, actually, I'll tell you why we came. And he says, you know, in a Torah scroll, there are many different letters and words. And as the Torah scrolls age, many words fade, and many letters can fade from the ink that falls off. In the old towns, they would hire a sofa, a scribe, every single Shabbat, to go through the entire scroll that they would be reading on Shabbat and fix the letters and make sure that the ink that's been faded to be able to make the ink black again. So it should be readable and legible because if one ink if one letter is faded, then the entire scroll is not kosher. So the rabbi tells him, the Rebbe is the scribe. He wants to make sure everybody's ink is perfect, and therefore he sent us here just to fix your scroll. 
And that was the end of the story. He was very impressed. He cried. He gave them a hug. And they went back. When they came back to Brooklyn, they gave a report to the Rebbe of who they met. And, the Rebbe, and they told the Rebbe of their story and what they said. And the Rebbe actually told them, well, the example and story that you gave sounds nice, but it's inaccurate. Why? Because every single person's soul, he says, the difference between ink and paper in the soul is as follows. Ink and parchment are two separate entities that come together and therefore they have a possibility for one to separate from one another. The soul in God, the soul of a Jew, it's impossible for it to separate. And therefore the right parable to give would be not ink and paper, but a chiseled out letter in a stone. That every single one of our souls are like chiseled within God. And therefore, sometimes, even those letters that are chiseled out get like schmutz on it and dust, and it covers it over. And all you need to do is blow away the dust, blow away the schmutz, and then you see the beautiful letters underneath. And that's what the soul is of every unique individual. Just as a prologue to the story, interesting to note is eventually this fellow, Mr. Listener, became one of the very big supporters of the yeshivas in Chicago, and it started becoming leading a more religious life just from this episode itself. But what we see over here is, the answer to our question is no, but yes, a Jew doesn't have to believe. A Jew does not have to believe in God to be Jewish, though. Yes, a Jew absolutely must believe in God to be a Jew. That means, as a Jew, we have to believe in God. But it doesn't make you Jewish if you do or do not believe in God. But what we see over here—that's not just the end of the story. There's reality that's even more than that. Deep down. Every single Jew believes regardless of what happens to them in life. As we learned, every single Jew has a neshama. And sometimes it takes a little more prodding and pulling to be able to find the neshama within the individual. This is why you will find that many times Jewish people in the most difficult of situations are willing to risk their lives not to even be seen or be assumed that they are accepting other religions. They wouldn't shake to the, they wouldn't bend to the cross, even if they're compelled in an inexplicable way. In the words of the Alter Rebbe in chapter 25, in chapter 18 of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe puts it this way, text number 4. Even the most, text number 4, page 115. Even the most irreverent and sinful Jews typically surrender their lives to sanctify God's name. They are prepared to suffer harsh torture rather than denounce the one God. And even if they are morally uncultivated, uneducated, and ignorant of God's greatness, even concerning the little they do know, they give a little serious thought so they aren't giving up their lives as a result of intellectual appreciation or deep thinking about God. Instead, without any intellectual, um, without any intellectual appreciation or careful thinking, they give up their lives for they consider it impossible to betray one God despite lack of any reasoning. The common cliche is, there's no atheist in a foxhole, right? And people explain that to mean, of course, there may be some truth to it, that when it comes to a predicament in a person's life, where they all of a sudden feel that their life's in danger, what's the first thing they say? God help me, whether they believed or they didn't believe. And sometimes you can argue that a person who says that or does that maybe doesn't truly believe because they're only shouting, shouting out to God out of despair. And you put anybody under pressure, they're going to call for something or someone, somebody to help them. 
But over here, what the Alter Rebbe is saying, he's making the argument for the opposite example. That people actually embrace God and make their situation worse. That means you have people that, when they're in danger, like an atheist, you may say, when in danger, turns to God and an action of the spirit. But the believer, the Jew, invites danger into his life. You're telling the Jew during the Spanish Inquisition, you want to get off? Just denounce your Judaism. Accept Christianity. What did millions of Jews do? They said, we will never give up our faith, even though all their life they were not religious, they were secular. They would not denounce their faith, even if it meant that they were going to be killed. Where does that come from? It's not logical. It's not something you can explain. They weren't looking for a logical explanation. They didn't have a logical explanation. But the Jew actually, when they can easily escape torture, death, or penalty, they'd rather not sever the relationship they have with God only and accept whatever it may be. The obvious conclusion is this is not because they were under duress. This was not because they were being forced into it. On the contrary, there was something beyond their understanding, something beyond them that they automatically embraced. And that is because they have an neshama. And that is because every, Seuss, every Jew still believes. Beyond their conscious thoughts, the soul continues to believe. It is because the neshama, the soul, is able to see God. And when you see something, there's no denying it. I don't need to be convinced intellectually that you are sitting here in front of me. Not only that, any argument you give me to the contrary, I'll say you're out of your mind. Why? Because I see it. Seeing is believing. Because I see something, it automatically becomes concrete and clear to me without any deniable action. So too the neshama is able to see godliness. The soul sees godliness, has a relationship with God. There's nothing that you can deny in the soul and not allow it and say he can't see it. And therefore the soul will go to extremes to be able to make sure not to denounce its relationship with God because it's what it sees and they can't shake it off. That faith will always be there. And for that reason, there are many people that may be non-believers, so to speak, in their whole life. But all of a sudden when they're put to the crux, when they're put the test that's put in front of them, do you believe or don't you believe? Then a shama comes shining forth saying, I believe, and they will never shake off that belief in God. With this knowledge that they have faith automatically, that faith sustains them, gives them the ability to be able to get in touch with their faith and understand and appreciate it at all limits. Yes? What about during the Spanish Inquisition or other times when they were forced and Jews did give up? So that's a very good question. So are we saying that there's never a time? Well, our neshama, they believe in God. It's interesting that even those Jews in any situation who did unfortunately succumb and give up their faith, there was a certain point of their life that they also said Shema Yisrael, they came to a certain agreement. There was a challenge, of course, when we talk about material versus spiritual, especially, let's say, to take the time in the Spanish Inquisition, because you mentioned it. People were very wealthy then, and for them to be able to give that up, it was a challenge. And all the materialism, not only their life, the torture that they saw people go through. And they thought, what about the big deal? So did they believe it, didn't they believe it? But even people who even acknowledge, there are many stories, and I'm sure you can look into it, 
many stories of people who, so to speak, became part of the Inquisition and then there was a turning point in their life and they gave it up. So just because at the moment they weren't able to stand up to the challenge, there may have been a later time in their life that they, they, they were able to stand up to the challenge. There's even stories of people after Germany. There's a story that you know any person can tell you about different stories in their life where they failed at some times and were able to pass at other times. So yes, their neshama's there, but it takes an energy, the neshama, the soul and the body need to be in sync to a certain extent to be able to send the messaging of what it's seeing. Does it happen at times that they failed? Yes, unfortunately. But what we do see is that when it does happen, what does that tell us? That there is a soul there that's shining forth that you can never shake off, that will always be with the person. Now, even those people who maybe never um, g gave in, but there was always a guilty feeling that they had with themselves. There is a concept in Judaism of something called a mishumad, an apostate, a person who does embrace other religions. And there were people, very well-known Jews, who, so to speak, were apostates. Doesn't mean that they didn't have a neshama, they had a neshama, because we see there were even these people, and there are well-known stories. Maybe there wasn't somebody that needed a good chisel to get out all the schmutz from them to reveal their soul. But deep down, they all have a neshama. What we have over here is to answer our questions. Do I have to believe in God to be Jewish? Jewish identity is dependent on the soul, not on your beliefs. And therefore, beyond the consciousness, all Jews have complete faith. Sometimes it takes a little more prodding to be able to find it, but every single Jew believes, whether we like it or not. And because of that, we all have the ability to believe. And therefore, we all have to believe. And it's just a question of what we do about our belief. Let's move on to question number two. Question number two. Is it kosher to have doubts about God? So what we have over here is there are many Jews who consider themselves believers and ashamed that they have doubts in the, in the religion. These doubts are not necessarily triggered by any specific belief or event that happened. Every so often it pops up and says, you know, do I really believe in God? Is there really a God? And you question yourself. It's not something you see in front of you. So automatically something you don't see with the naked eye, so to speak, you always say, is it really there or not? What if he's not really there? And the question is, are we going to be punished, singed, burned in hell because of these questions? The question takes it even more so. Do these doubts, do they question, if I have a doubt, does it mean that my faith is not strong? Does it mean that a person who has faith doesn't have any doubts whatsoever? And what is it about these doubts that may make me a bad Jew or am I a good Jew? What does it mean because of it? What do these doubts mean to me? Why am I having these doubts? Sometimes the doubt itself does different things to people. Sometimes a doubt causes a person to go array from what they're doing because maybe they're not sure if they believe or not and therefore all of a sudden they have to make this full-blown crisis if God exists or not then all of a sudden everything goes haywire and if God doesn't care if God is there does he care what I do if he doesn't exist maybe he does care and all of a sudden you become this free agent and you start doing whatever you want and you give it all up and try finding an alternative path because of my doubts in God 
Or sometimes the dad is just something I wake up in the morning. Is he there? Is he not there? And I turn over on the other side and I move on. Regardless of the severity of the dad or the concern, the question is, is it okay? Is it a problem? You know, they say, <coughs> talking about doubts and believers. So there was this fellow, his name Jake used to say, wow. He was always amazed by everything. He was an unbelievable believer. He said, wow. God parted the Red Sea and millions of Jews crossed. All of a sudden, his agnostic friend looks at him and says, first of all, it's not the Red Sea, it's the Sea of Reeds. And second of all, it was only one foot deep, so what's the big deal? To that, the believer responds, oh, wow, what a miracle. God drowned the Egyptians in just one foot of water. <laughs> to the believer, there's no questions. That's what one somebody used to say. The believer has no questions. The, what is it? The non-believer never has an answer. So what is it? Is there a problem with having a question if I'm a believer? Can we view them as uh, outside voices? What are we supposed to do with these things? So the first thing is we have to know, we have to recognize that because, as we mentioned before, we all have an ashama, we all believe. So then what are these feelings, these outside doubts that are coming in? Step number one is ignore it. Don't give it any validity. What does this mean? So if we examine the questions and understand how is it possible that we should have these doubts? How can a believer doubt? If I believe in God, why am I having doubts about God? Does anybody have a doubt if they're alive? Do you have to pinch yourself and say, one second, is that really me? And that is because you know you're alive. You know you're active, you know you're productive, you know you have to eat, you know you have to drink, and therefore you're alive. So why all of a sudden, when it comes to God, am I doubting myself? What we're wrong in? That's because God gave us the ability to believe. Not only did God give us the ability to believe, but he also gave us the ability to doubt God. That same God who gave us the ability to believe in God said, you know what? I want you to choose to believe in God. And therefore, I'm going to create within you a system, something called the evil inclination, who's going to constantly ask you, do you really believe? Is it all true? And it's going to constantly bother you and edge you and say, are you really a believer? Why? Because God was testing you to see, are you truly believing? The Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, will tempt us and tries to allure us to be able to give us doubt. And that's why if you look, and just to go off a little bit on a tangent, if you remember when the Jews came out of Egypt, who was the first enemy to try to come and try to, to deter them from going to the land of Israel was a nation called Amalek. Hasidism explains that when it says Amalek came, it says that they cooled the Jewish down, the people down. Well, how did they cool them down? By casting it down and saying, you think really God can take you out of Egypt? He can bring you to Israel? What do you need to do to be able, somebody that's passionate and excited about something, what's the first thing you gotta do, you can tell them to be able to calm them down? Throw doubt at them. You think you really can do it? Why are you getting so excited? What are you getting so passionate about it? You think God really exists? That doubt is Amalek. That doubt is the Amalekites trying to stop you from conquering the land of Israel. The same way God made a physical Amalek when the Jews came out of Egypt and they were in a high about to go get the Torah. So too every single one of us, whenever we get excited and passionate about Judaism and about our relationship to God, 
all of a sudden you're going to see, like clockwork, there's going to be a, really? Maybe I'm going a little too quick. Maybe I shouldn't go today. I have a headache. I have a stomachache. Maybe God really doesn't exist. Look what happened in my life. Look at this. Look at that. And look at the other. But you have to remember that that is coming from the evil inclination. Text number five. Just look at see text number five. God gave the Sitra Achra, which is the other side, the evil inclination, permission and power to oppose the holiness of God, of the godly soul, so to inspire us to overcome it. Yes. I was just thinking about the, that energy is strongest right before Shabbat because it has no power on Shabbat. So it's like Shabbat is like one of the greatest Jewish holidays, in my opinion. That's because we got an extra soul, not that it has no energy. In fact, in a way you're correct, that Kabbalah explains that on Shabbat we don't have to uplift all the sparks because they automatically get uplifted. That's why we eat and drink and we indulge in materialism, so to speak, on Shabbat to, to an extent because it's automatically uplifted. The bottom line is that anything that we have in holiness, and the stronger, as we spoke about this in last week, is the stronger something that we see in holiness, God has a counterbalance, and therefore, what's the counterbalance Therefore, to give us the impetus and excitement and motivate us to do the right thing. So if belief in God would just be on a standstill, on a cruise control, there would be no excitement about it. There would be no passion behind it. So therefore, there's the evil inclination. The evil inclination comes and tries to disturb us and tries to cast doubt. And therefore, in order for us to be able to achieve some type of level and effort to be able to overcome it, that evil inclination is there. But God gave the evil inclination permission to do so, and therefore, this seemingly is impossible. Which brings us to a profound understanding. That all of a sudden, you started saying, why do I have these struggles? Why do I have these doubts? Do I really believe? Where is it all coming from? Where are all these outside voices coming from trying to disturb me in my service of God? You know why you're having that? Because God basically rigged the system. And what he did was he created that within you that even though you really believe in totality, but he created a doubt within you to be able to make your belief even stronger. Because that's part of your human psyche. That's part of your human nature. There's an interesting story about a chassid who came once to the Tzemach Tzedek. The Tzemach Tzedek was the third Chabad Rebbe, who complained and he said, I'm plagued with doubts. In Yiddish was, I have doubts and belief of God. Tzemach Tzedek looks at him and says, what's the problem with that? He said, Rebbe, what don't you understand? I have doubts in God. What do you mean, what's the problem with that? So he says, so what's the matter that you have doubts? So he says, but I'm a Jew. How can I have doubts if God exists? So the Tzemach Tzedek responds to him, is the good. If so, it's all good. What was the Tzemach Tzedek telling him? What was he explaining to him? Why? If you were not a believer, would you care if you doubt and you believe in God? Would you care? If you don't believe, okay, what's the big deal if I have doubts and I believe in God? You're disturbed by the fact that you're Jewish and you have a doubt and you believe in God. What's that saying? That's the greatest sign that you believe in God. That's the greatest sign that you believe in God. Why would you care? And the very fact that you care shows me that you have your evil inclination. You're a Jew. That's your makeup. The evil inclination is there. It's trying to tempt you. And you're saying, no, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm bothered that you're bothering me. Because if you wouldn't care, that means you don't believe. 
The very fact that you believe is the reason why you're disturbed by it. So then don't be worried. Just ignore it. Having doubts is not something to be depressed about. Having doubts is not something to be shamed about. It doesn't mean you're a bad Jew. But on the contrary, it means that God has the confidence in you that you will overcome it. That you will be able to stand up because God doesn't give you a challenge you can't overcome. God won't give you an evil inclination that you can't stand up against. And the very fact that you have this challenge, this doubt, that means that you have the ability to get rid of it. So don't worry. Don't be ashamed. Encounter and take on those doubts, not with shame, but with strength, and recognize that you have the ability to overcome it. How? We're about to get to it. Yes? So I was thinking, you can't prove that God exists, and that's where doubt comes from, but that's proof that God does exist, because you can't prove God doesn't exist either. Okay. So if you can't prove it, it exists or it doesn't exist, then... That's, that keeps you in the status quo. It doesn't take right. you. Then, then it truly is choice. It's free will. Of course. We, we're, we're all working on the premise that we choose to believe, correct? It only exists on faith. Yep. That's what we spoke about last week. The question is only, how do we then overcome the doubts? Should I debate the matter with my evil inclination and tell them, hey, guess what? I got it figured out. I have all the answers. I have an intellectual reasoning behind it. And the answer is absolutely not. Do not debate the doubts. In fact, we know that God is putting the doubt there. And all you're doing by engaging in it is wasting your energy and recognizing and realizing that what happens is, is you're going to get tiresome because of it. Because the evil inclination has unlimited amount of strength. So therefore, what you got to do is ignore it. Step number one. Recognize that those outside voices are there just to motivate you to make your strength, to make your belief in God even stronger. Recognize that these are only there to help you, yes, and now maybe in a roundabout way, but over there, it's all it's doing. It's part of God's goal. Recognize that the temptation itself is doing a mission of God. What do I mean by that? That the tempter, the one who's trying to cast doubts in your belief in God, doesn't want you to fall prey to it. The Alter Rebbe in Tanya brings an example of the Zohar. It says in the Zohar, it says, imagine the king wants his child, this prince, to get used to what it's like out in the world. So what does he do? The king hired a prostitute to seduce his own son. But the prostitute says, you've got to go until try to get the kid. But does the, kid, does the prostitute want the kid to fail? Absolutely not. Because she knows that the king doesn't want the kid to fail. The same idea is also, God gave us the evil inclination. The evil inclination understands and appreciates and recognizes that we should not fail. But it's doing its job. But while it's doing its job, it also hopes that we won't fall prey to it. It's like you're giving your kid a test, but you want your kid to pass the test. But you've got to give them the test to see if they're going to stay up to it. To see their strength. To see if they have the ability to do it. The same thing is also the Altarebbe tells us the animal soul. is saying that God has confidence in your ability to overcome it. They're a testament to your superior power. And therefore you have to counter them from a place of empowerment. Let's see the words of the Zohar.
Text number 6, page 118. God wished that people constantly serve him and follow true path to merit such service. If this indeed was God's will, how can the evil servant come and incite against the will of the master? Turn the people to an evil path, thrust them from a good path, and cause them not to do the will of the master. Certainly he is doing the will of the master. This is analogous to a king who has an only son whom he cherished. He lovingly commanded him not to come near a dis, um, disreputable woman, because anyone who approached her would not be worthy to enter the king's palace. The son promised that he would lovingly heed his father's command. Outside the king's palace was a prostitute who was very beautiful, and behold, after a few days, the king said, I want to see my son's feelings towards me. He called the prostitute and told her, Seduce my son and test his feelings towards me. What did the prostitute do? She pursued the king's son and started to grab him, kiss him, and seduce him in various ways. Now, the son were, now if the son were decent and heeded the father's commands, he would scold her, ignore her, thrust her away. Then the father rejoices with his son, brings him into his inner sanctum and place, gives him presents and gifts and great honor. This is the same idea of what happens. If you want to use a modern, modern terminology for it, is today they call it gaslighting. When somebody tries to tell you something and make you feel like you're the one, the victim, instead, instead of making you feel like you're the victim, make you feel like you're the abuser. They try to cause you to try to change your purview, change your outlook. Instead of thinking that you are the one that should be doing the right thing, they're saying that maybe you're the one doing the wrong thing by tr telling you words and causing you to go off track. That's exactly what the evil inclination is trying to do. The evil inclination is like that nagging telemarketer telling you that you have some unbelievable lottery in Nigeria that you just have to uncover. And what do you tell that person? Get off the phone and you block all those spam calls. The same idea, you have to recognize that when somebody is trying to cast doubt, number one, ignore it. Number two, berate it. Don't go into a conversation. You don't start talking to this telemarketer scammer saying, why can you be a scammer if you would go get a better job? You'd say, don't call me. Stop bothering me. And I know what you are. Call bluff bluff. Exactly what the king wanted his prince to do to the one that was seducing the same idea is we need to call the evil inclination is bluff. Recognize it's doing something wrong, appreciate what it's doing, and therefore we have to employ those same exact tactics to be able to those outside voices who are trying to cast doubt. That when those outside voices are trying to give us a doubt, if we can't ignore it, then berate it. But don't go into conversation with it. Text number 7 from the Alter Rebbe and Tanya. Page 120. Grow angry with your animal soul, your evil inclination, and thunder against it indigently. In your mind, how long will you hide God's infinite light from me, defying the self-evident truth? This will help your godly soul see the truth of God's endless unity with the clarity of sensory vision, not just by the power of deduction and logic, but the Jewish people are believers, the children are believers. The bottom line is that we are all believers. And it's only a question of how we're going to reveal that belief. Think of it this way. Doubts are like shadows. Look at shadows. The first time you see a shadow, it's scary. It's larger than life. But is there any substance to the shadow? The moment you put a little bit of light to the shadow, all of a sudden it gets smaller and smaller and the shadow disappears. When we separate the darkness from the light, we're able to identify darkness for what it is. It's no longer taking energy from the light. 
The same ideas are with our doubts. The more a person engages in it, the more that you stand to lose. The more you try to debate it, the more you're giving credit to it. So therefore, step number one, get rid of it, ignore it. Step number two, if it keeps on bothering you, berate it, get rid of it. Swat them away and make sure that that irrelevant nuisance is no longer something there to be able to carry on. So to our question, is it kosher to have doubts about God? Yes, that's part of God's plan. The stronger you are, maybe the more the doubts you'll have. And number two, swat them away and just carry on. Don't allow these doubts to be a hindrance into your way of serving God. We're now going to take the next question to a totally different angle. And this question is, why must I fear God? Why do I have to fear God? You know the story about the guy, this, rob, this thief comes into a house, and every time he's about to touch you, touch something in the house, he hears a voice, like this shrieky voice, God is watching you. This thief is getting really annoying, trying to figure out where this noise is coming from. Finally, he sees a bird in the corner, keeps on saying, God, God is watching you, God is watching you. So he says, hey, what are you making all these noises for? What kind of bird are you anyway? So the bird says, well, I'm Moses. The thief says, what kind of guy would name his bird Moses? So the same person named the Rottweiler, God. <laughs> we talk about fear. What does it mean to be fear? Fear God. Maimonides in his magnum opus, the Mishnah Torah, the 14 volumes that he talks about the laws and codified the Jewish law, begins in the second chapter, he says as follows, text number 8a, page 121. It's a mitzvah to love and fear his glorious and awesome God, as the verse states, and you shall fear and you shall love your God and fear your God. What does that mean, fear? Tell anybody, in my relationship, they have to fear me. Tell me how long that relationship will last. Probably not too long. Anybody from your psychologist to your spouse, nobody's looking to fear you. They want to have a relationship. And if we're supposed to have a relationship with God, why are we told that we need to fear God? So why does God command us to fear him? If God loves us and God wants to have and loves wants to have a healthy relationship, then why does He command us to fear Him? What does it mean to fear Him? So clearly, if we understand that fear destroys relationship, we must be defining fear incorrectly. So let's see what the American Psychologist Association defines as fear: a basic and intense emotion aroused by the detection of an imminent threat. Fear of God, according to that, would mean that I don't turn on the light on Shabbat because I'm afraid I might get smite by lightning. I don't eat kosher because I'm afraid if I don't eat kosher, I might get choked on the food and die. That's what fear means. Fear of punishment. Is that what God wants? Is that what God wants of us? It's fear of God. That type of fear of God doesn't help my relationship. It doesn't make my relationship any better. That seems like a very negative connotation. No one feel wants to live by the threat of something, regardless if it's a spiritual or physical matter. So if fear of God is supposed to be, and is said in the same sentence as love of God, 
how then will that enhance our relationship? So let's take a step further how Maimonides describes it. 8b, 122. What is the way to love and fear God when a person contemplates on God's wondrous deeds and creation and appreciates his infinite wisdom and defies all comparison, they will immediately love, praise, and glorify God, yearning with tremendous desire to know God's name. When they reflect on these matters, they will immediately tremble in awe and fear, aware that they are but tiny, humble, and dull creatures of slight, petty wisdom before his perfect knowledge. My Maimonides over here is describing an emotion that is not an emotion that I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me, but on the contrary, an emotion that stems from appreciation of how, God, how great God is and how small we are. We would translate that in English, not fear, but awe. What the mitzvah is to be in awe of God. What's the difference? Awe is a combination of recognizing, A, admiration, B, humility, and C, respect. You admire something you are most humbled by, and automatically, because you are humbled by it, you gain to appreciate it and have respect for it. That are recipes for having a healthy relationship. That combination is admirable, because you want to have that in any relationship, the humility, the respect, as we'll see. Take for a moment and think of a person that you were awestruck by. Anybody? In whose presence did you feel that awe? A celebrity? A person of great talent? A person of great quality? I'm sure you've had people that you said, in their presence you took a step back. You realized there was holiness, or you realized there was greatness here. You know, the Torah says, that if you meet the king or queen, you have to make a special blessing. You meet a person of great stature, you have to make a blessing. Why? Because they carry a certain awe with them. The same ideas that we find when a person finds himself in awe, it may be just for a fleeting moment, but the question is then, how do you capture that moment? You're in the presence of whatever celebrity you're excited, you're wonderful, wow! Okay, then you go back home, you go to sleep, big deal. You don't sleep over it. How do we then capture the moment of this awe that we have of God? So I say, God is awesome, beautiful. Now I go back to sleep. What does that mean to me? Not only that, because I don't see God, it becomes something of an abstract. It's not something that it will automatically, it will use or make a change or an effect of me. How do I take this awe of God and materialize it into my psyche that it should change my behavior? The following meditation that the Tanya explains tells us on how we can achieve this goal. Text number nine. Contemplate God's greatness and his dominion that envelopes all worlds, both higher and lower, how it is invested in all the worlds while simultaneously transcending them all. And God is standing above you. His glory fills the entire world. Yet he observes you and searches your heart. And if you're serving him appropriately, accordingly, you should serve him with awe and reverence as if you're standing before a king. Contemplate this at length to the extent of your intellectual capacity and available time. This is from chapter 41 in Tanya that the Alter Rebbe talks about every single day that before we begin to pray, one should contemplate about the awesomeness and the greatness of God. If you were to take every single morning 
not only after you wake up in the morning and say, thank you God for returning my soul, but before I'm about to pray, understand and say, why am I praying to God? Because God is one thing that transcends all. He has the power within Him. And still in all, He's waiting to hear my prayers. Just take that for a moment. Just recognize that for a moment. Automatically, the sense of all humility and respect for God is channeled within you. That inspires you just to be better. Because if the great transcending infinite God can and wants to communicate with me, so me, the limited finite individual, maybe I should listen to the person next door to me. Maybe I should be nicer to my spouse, to my children, to whatever it may be. Automatically, that translates. It gives you a better ability. It encapsulates. And it gives you direction that aligns you. What am I praying for? What am I saying? Who am I talking to? So now that we've understand what fear in God is, that we know fear that doesn't mean fear to be afraid, but it means awe and respect. What's the other component of a relationship? Which is love. Why isn't it enough to the Ahaftas Hashem God says, love me with all your heart. Isn't love enough to be the glue to connect me with God? Why do I need to fear? Why do I need the second component? In the same verse, God says, love God and fear God. Why can't I just love God? What's wrong with just love? Only focus on the positive. Well, we have two motivations, away from pain and towards pleasure. So that's but if we covered. just explain that fear is not away from pain, fear means awe. It means about the awesomeness and the transcendence of God. So I'm not concerned now about punishment, right? But if there's someone that you have a deep respect for and you offend them, then they're not going to want to... So why can't I just have love? Because I love for the person and therefore I won't offend them. But think about this. Every moment of love, or every aspect of love, has one component in it. Maybe a little minute in some cases, but it always has that component. Love, by definition, is selfish. Love, by definition, even if I'm there for the other person. I love the other person because who they are. Well, what's the difference? What's the word before it? I love the other person. I love to help the other person. But I love to help the other person. Every component of love, any way you cut it, slice it, love will always have a selfish component to it. Even if your relationship is based only on love, I love my spouse for all the great qualities she has. What happens when she loses that quality? What happens to my love? It's diminished. I still love her, but it's only, again, there's a selfish component to it. Even if she has no qualities, I love my wife for because she loves me. Again, because she loves me. There's always going to be some type of selfish component in any type of things that you do in love because I'm choosing something to love. I'm taking an action to do because of it. Respect, on the other hand, admiration comes out of humility. Admiration comes because I put myself down to be able to see that greatness of the other in the person. Or even if I don't put myself down, I see the greatness of the other person. And therefore, I know I'm not as great as them. Or therefore, I respect them for a greater amount. That level of awe, that level of humbling, makes the committed relationship. It's not only about me, 
it automatically only becomes about the other person. If you think about it this way, love is selfish. Every sentence that you're going to say, talk about love is going to be, I want to connect to him. I want to make them happy. Even if it's about God. It's all about self-focus. I love God and because of that, I'm going to do a mitzvah. I love God, therefore I'll study Torah. I love God, so therefore I want to be connected with God. I want to have a relationship with God. But it's the I. In contrast, when I'm talking about awe, awe is humbling. An awareness of how great God is automatically puts me in perspective. What am I? Where am I? What am I doing? When I want to talk about fueling a relationship, when I talk about making a relationship better, healthier, and stronger, it can't come <coughs> because of a self-persuasion. It can't come because I want it. And there has to be a greater picture because of it. And when we talk about our respect, our humbling emotions, and because of that, they're most dominant, whatever it may be, in any safer way, when I see there was Mount Everest in front of me, I say, wow, I'm tiny. I don't say, I'm so great that Mount Everest is also great and therefore I like it. It automatically creates within the individual a humbling opportunity. When one acts out of reverence, they are driven by their emotions that says, I must be of a certain way. They're fully focused on God and not all about themselves. And therefore, what does God tell us? It can't be only out of love. It has to be out of fear. Fear takes us out of our natural, materialistic, selfish desires, gives us an ability to be selfless, and therefore leads us to a closer relationship with God. Not only that, the Tal Hasidism takes it a step further. Proper awe and admiration leads us to a love, to a love that can be selfless. In Hasidism, it takes it to a whole deeper level than in general, in wanting something, in a desire, in a relationship, there's an external and an internal. And the end external is love, while the internal is awe and admiration. And therefore, as the Zohar uses, these are the two wings that help a person to be able to connect to God. You need both. You need the love and the fear because they're external and internal. But what should be the propelling factor? Should start from admiration and awe. That can bring you to a proper love, a love which is thorough and out of a selfless base, not a selfish base. So to answer the question that we have today over the years, why must I fear God? Number one, fear of God is a deep sense of awe. Number two, it takes us out of our naturally selfish ways, bringing us closer to God. And finally, for our last question for today. Our last question for today is, if I'm okay with believing in God, but I'm not righteous. Can we still have a relationship with God? I'm not religious, I'm sorry. I'm okay with believing in God, but I'm not religious. Can we still have a relationship with God? So, let's answer the question in one word. What do you think it is? Yes. Your, religion with, your relationship with God has nothing to do with religion, like we explained earlier on today. But what does that mean? So let me put it this way. Do I look religious? Huh? Yeah. Why do I look religious? Why? I look like a rabbi. I look like a, wait, I saw many rabbis that don't look like me. <laughs> what makes me look religious? All of a sudden, we decided we're going to put people in a box. If I'm wearing a yarmulke and I'm wearing titsis, not only am I religious, I'm probably ultra-religious. And you probably think 
that I only keep kosher. And you probably think that I only eat glot kosher, right? Automatically, you see a person, the way we view this world, is that everybody has to go into a box. This person dresses this way, so therefore they act this way. This person dresses this way, so therefore they act this way. You drive a Lamborghini, that means you make over a million dollars. You drive a Ford Taurus, because they don't exist anymore, that means you don't make anything yet. You're on the... <laughs> whatever it may be. Automatically, everything has a box. That's the way it is. So what does religious mean? What does religious mean? All of a sudden, the word religious became a status, an identity. If you have this type of yarmulke, you're this kind of Jew. You have a bigger yarmulke, you're that kind of Jew. You have a knitted yarmulke, you're that kind of Jew. Long payas makes you one kind of Jew. Is that what Judaism is all about? Is Judaism all about, is our relationship with God the size of our yarmulke? Is our relationship with God depending on what I look like on the outside? Now, I know you know that Chabad always says we don't put li- Jews don't have labels. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And we're pre-domination, we're, we're, we're post-denominational Jews. Those are nice taglines, but what do they really mean? Is there no self-identity? How does it work? So as we said, religion is commonly viewed as a status or identity. But the problem with that is, if I take religious or non-religious as an identity, it's very dangerous. On both ends. Why is it dangerous? You know, always people tell me, ah, oh, I'm not religious like you. I said, how do you know I'm religious? <laughs> You're making assumptions. You see me dressed this way. What is religious? Why is that an identity? The moment I make religion as an identity, automatically, you're creating a danger zone. So let's understand why it's dangerous. Let's start why it's dangerous to identify yourself as a non-religious person. The first thing you tell a person, you want to put it, I'm not religious. What is the danger of saying you're not religious? The danger of saying you're not religious is, if I'm not religious, then I don't have to do anything. That's it. I'm exempt. I'm not religious, so therefore, I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that. If I'm not religious, what happens? If I'm not in it, then what's the point of doing it? I'm not religious anyway, so why should I do this? I'm not religious anyway, and you just add the next line. Is that going to get you to have a relationship? Is that going to get you to observe more? Is that going to get you to do any mitzvah? You know, when the Rebbe came out with the tefillin campaign, and he's stopping people on the streets and asking people to put on tefillin, one of the biggest arguments were, what's the point? This guy is not religious, probably will never put on tefillin again since you saw him. And what's the point of putting on tefillin? More importantly, even if a person's putting it on only to do you a favor, so what? If they're not going to affect them. If someone else isn't saying it, perhaps the potential tefillin candidate is saying, I'll put it on, make the guy happy, but what's it going to do to my life? Or even if he's putting it on, he's saying, I'm not religious anyway, so why not? Big deal. What happens? What's the danger of calling myself not religious? Is that I'm not interested in anything. After a while, guilt kicks in. Yes, but it's still, but you still have the opposite fact. I'm not real. So you have the guilt that you're not religious, but that will get to in a moment. But what happens then? What's the danger of identifying yourself as religious? Well, I looked apart. I wear a yarmulke. Wear a tzitzis. Oh, so if one day I slip, big deal. God will forgive me. 
at least the other 364 I did good. One Shabbos said, okay, God will look at the other way. The problem with being religious, so to speak, and you think I'm religious, is that all of a sudden I start to cherry pick and say, I'm a good boy here so I can make a mistake there. Why? Because I'm religious. I go, I walk the part, I walk the walk. And all of a sudden we start belittling the things that may be important in a relationship. The Altarebbe phrases this as follows. Text number 10. A Jew is only capable of violating God's will because of a certain spirit of insanity that takes hold of it, convincing them that this infraction won't sever the connection with God. Why? Because I wear tzitzis and I put on tefillin. Meaning, what the Altarebbe is saying over here is, when you do something wrong and you feel that that's going to sever your relationship, will you ever do something no. The only reason why I'm doing something wrong is because I'm saying God still loves me. It's like a person saying, I can do X, Y, and Z wrong in my relationship because I'm a nice guy. I take out the garbage every day. I hold in the house. So let me do one infraction. Big deal. Does anybody ever rationalize that? Absolutely not. So religion as an identity, religiosity as an identity or a status can actually enable wrongdoing because it's a level of insanity that comes into you to tell you I can do whatever I want either way to the bag to the negative or to the positive so what does we do about this religion thing it seems like it's a bad thing anyway you swing so what do you do about it do you do it you're bad if you do you're bad if you don't and here's the truth and here's what we got to look at religious or non-religious it's not about the things you do. It's not about retaining a religious state. I don't wear a yarmulke or a tzitzis. I don't keep kosher to be able to call myself religious, to be able to make a status. I do it because every single mitzvah connects me with God. Judaism is about creating connections, relationships. Judaism is about every single mitzvah I have. There are 613 strands on that rope. That gives me a connection, that gives me a better Wi-Fi together with God. Every mitzvah I do, I'm connected with God. And when I do that mitzvah in my simple way, I did the mitzvah just like Moses did the mitzvah. I'm no less of a Jew or no better Jew than Moses. Because the same Torah that told Moses to do the mitzvah, told me to do the mitzvah. It's not about a status, it's about a connection. Text number 11. When you fulfill a mitzvah, your godly soul, your bodily consciousness, and all their expressions are united in a perfect unity with God. This union endures forever because God and His will transcends time. What this is telling us is that every single mitzvah, whether it's from the religious Jew or the irreligious Jew, it doesn't make a difference. Every single mitzvah connects us with Hashem. And because of that, Jews who connect often and there are Jews who connect less often. There are people who tap into their consciousness a little more, and people who do it a little less. And therefore, it doesn't make a difference what grade you got. You showed up. You took the test. You're connected. Regardless of how consistently you are about observing what God tells you, we are still children of Hashem, and God is waiting for our phone call. Are you less of a child because you called your mom only once a month instead of once a week? 
Or think about it the other way around. Are your children less of children because they only call you up when they need to be able to reload their credit card? <laughs> no! There are such some obnoxious children, some pleasant children. And we make them all. We make them all. We run the gamut. There are some that are better behaved and some that are less behaved. But just because they call less often doesn't make them less of a child. Every single person is a child of God. Some of us call a little more often and some of us call just when we need our credit card refilled. But it doesn't make us less of a child. Imagine somebody who's disappointed. If someone disappointed a staff or a friend. So the next day when they approach for a favor and they say, you know what? I'm already bad spouse. I'm already bad. So might as well go do another infraction. I messed up yesterday, so might as well mess up today. Or the other way around. Being that I'm such a good spouse, I can mess up today. Would you say that's logic? That's exactly what it means about, therefore we talk about our relationships. We'll say, my dears, religion is not the, is really not the point of what Judaism is all about. It's about connecting to Hashem. And therefore, he <clears throat> doesn't decide what membership or how we have come to certain co uh, concepts or groups or affiliations. When a religious person fails, they are no more holy than an atheist or somebody who identifies himself as not religious. When a religious person, or a person I should say, looks religious, does something wrong, it's just as bad if a person who doesn't look religious does something wrong. When a person who doesn't look religious does something right, does a mitzvah, they're just like Moses. They're connecting like Moses. So you can call it religion, you can call it whatever you want, but the bottom line is, it's not an airline, we're not here collecting brownie points, it's not about mileage, it's about our connection to God. And therefore, when we talk about going back to those one-time tefillin, when that one Jew puts on tefillin, the Rebbe told them, that one Jew is connecting to God as Moses. And therefore, it's important for the moment that he's putting on tefillin. If you get one Jew to do a mitzvah, saying Shema Yisrael, whatever that mitzvah may be, even if it's in one singular moment, you have now brought a connection for that Jew. He has an infinite connection with God. Something that can never be reversed. Something he'll have for eternity. Because a mitzvah is eternal. So when you do a mitzvah, you get connected with eternity. Something that can never be taken away. While on the other hand, we're not doing something, what is it, a zero? Another zero, another zero, big deal. Religion is only invaluable for what it is. And therefore, as we see, the Tanya says the following. Text number 12. Before every mitzvah, we recite a blessing who has sanctified us with his commandments. This means that a mitzvah is akin to a man who marries, sanctifies a woman who lives with in perfect unity. As the verse states, he shall attach to his wife, they shall be one flesh. When you engage in Torah, mitzvahs, your godly animating soul unites with God similar fashion, only infinitely more so. That's why King Solomon compared the soul's union with a god to the marriage of a bride and groom in the Song of Songs. Using this term of attachment, passion, yearning, hugging, and kissing. The Mishnah tells us one hour of repentance, one hour of repentance and good deeds in this world is more precious than the life of the world to come. When the person does a mitzvah, 
they are connecting to God even greater than all ways in the world to come. And therefore, regardless of your consistency, regardless of what it may be, this one Messiah, small mitzvah, may seem insignificant, but in the eyes of Hashem, it's completely transformed the world. As Maimonides tells us even more so. And here's the final point of the words of Maimonides. Text number 13. Throughout the entire year, people ought to view themselves as half-worthy and half-unworthy. As they ought to see the whole world as equally balanced between worthy and unworthy. If they perform one mitzvah, they tip their own balance and that of the entire world to the side of goodness and bring deliverance and salvation to themselves and the others. This is implied by the verse, a righteous person is the foundation of the world. One who acts righteously tips the balance of the entire universe for redemption. So this answers our question. I'm okay with God, with believing in God, but I'm not religious. Can we still have a relationship? What's the answer? Forget about religion. Just make the relationship. Not only make the relationship for yourself, but make the relationship for the entire universe. Your one mitzvah infinitely connects you for eternity with godliness. Your one mitzvah connects you with God. It doesn't make a difference. Religion not. Nobody's religious. We're all about connections. Every single mitzvah is a connection with God. Even more so, you think, ah, what's my one mitzvah? Big deal in the big scheme of things. What did I do? My Maimonides tells you you have to view the world as a balanced scale. One mitzvah, one solitude mitzvah can transform the world and make the world for good and bring salvation to the world. One mitzvah. One mitzvah. That's all we need. That one mitzvah you do today, despite the fact that there were thousands of mitzvahs already done, it just needs one little more mitzvah. So imagine the value that your mitzvah has. Micro and macro. Stop looking at a bigger picture of what box you're putting in. If I'm like this or I'm like that, if I look like this or if I look like that. Imagine you can change the world. What would you do? One mitzvah. One coin. One tefillin. One lighting Shabbos candles. Whatever it may be. Pick the mitzvah. There are 613 of them. Imagine the connection that you have for eternity and the final redemption that you can bring about. So to answer our question, I am okay with believing in God, but I'm not religious. Can we still have a relationship? In simple, that would be, forget about religion, start building a relationship with God. Practically speaking, do a mitzvah. I think that's a great way to finish today, so here are the key points for today. Lesson four is expectations. One. Judaism is not only a culture, ethnicity, race, or religion. Essence of a Jew by dint of their having a Jewish soul. Two, because of their Jewish soul, a Jew a, is inherently Jewish, regardless of whether they believe in God. And B, really does believe in God. Three, doubts about faith, they're normal, and not indicative of a lack of faith. Rather, God sends feelings of doubt to test our resolve. Four, inasmuch as doubts are just outside voices testing the Jew's resolve, they do not define his or her identity. The best way to deal with such challenges is not by 
engaging them or by ignoring them. Five, fear of God isn't feeling threatened by God. Rather, it is respecting and being in awe of Him. Six, respect is a critical component in a Jew's relationship with God. It keeps one committed, even if love lapses. Seven, Judaism isn't about the label religion. It is about connecting with God through Torah and mitzvot. Eight, you don't have to be religious to have a relationship with God. Even if you are religious, you still need to maintain a relationship with God in actual practice. Next week, bring your thinking caps with. We're going to start going into philosophical discussions, probably questions that great philosophers have discussed for millennia, but don't worry, we'll keep it simple. <laughs> questions that we're going to talk about next week. Can God create a rock that he can't lift? Does free knowledge preclude our free choice? I'm sorry, does God's foreknowledge preclude our free choice? Is there anything that God finds too difficult to do? And finally, if God decided something... Can we change his mind? I can see already your mind trickling with questions.